Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you, people, the gentleman on my show today has had quite a prolific career, whether it be TV, movies. He's directed a bunch of stuff. I was going through IMDb, and you just look at his like latest TV credits, which includes one of my favorite shows, Snowfall. He did some episodes of them, but he's been around. He directed Airheads that my friend Rich Wilkes wrote, and my guest is Michael Lehman. All right. Did I, I got it right. See, we talked. We you talked did. More. You got it wrong. Just exactly right. You now. Do you ever just look back at your body of work and go, "Holy crap! I, I I've done a lot." Yeah. Well, sometimes I do, and 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 then I question myself, which I'm apt to do anyway. And I say, "Is have I have I put quantity over quality? Should I have uh, been one of these filmmakers who uh, produced something every few years? It was you know." The, they spent forever honing all the details. At some point in my life, I decided that I really, really love directing. I love being on set. I love working with actors. I love all the challenges of making stuff. And so I opted to some degree, not for quantity over quality, but I, I'm happy with the quantity. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's funny. You said you had said you, uh, you're happy being on set. And I've talked to a lot of actors and I haven't talked to a director about how COVID has changed the set. Like actors, we know you have to eat in your you know your trailer. You can't take all the granola crunch bars from Crafty anymore because they'll say we gotta serve you. But how does it affect the director and the back of the house? Because you're something you know you're around your cameraman. How has it changed for you? Oh, it's terrible. And and you know everybody, the actors, uh, the director, the DP. The first ADs, the people that are close on the set to everybody, we're all zone A, which means we all have to follow the strictest protocols. Um, even so far as in the in the early days of COVID, before there were uh, vaccines and everybody was really worried about all this stuff, I would have to wear a mask and a face shield. And, um, and I couldn't get near the actors without the mask and the face shield on because the actors, of course, didn't have a mask on, at least when the camera was rolling. And they'd build these little booths for the actors to sit in between takes. Um, it, it, the, the whole thing, it was, it was intense. It was weird. It was horrible. It was disorienting. And it was um, alienating. But, you know, we all, we all suffered it. Um, everybody was happy to be working and to be on set. So... That, that made up for a lot of the nonsense. But it was funny because people, there would be COVID monitors on set who if they caught you without a mask, they'd go, mask, you know, watch out, what are you doing? And because you'd forget, you know, I'd pull my mask down to talk to somebody outside when the, the risks were relatively little. But if I kept the mask down, somebody would pounce on me and say, put that on. <laughs> uh, anyway, and then, you, you know, during production, the inevitably somebody gets COVID. It's usually an actor. I don't know. I don't know why. But, you know, the actors, I think, were less strict sometimes in their off hours. And so actors would get sick and uh, and you'd have to shut down. Happily, I did. I don't think I ever completely shut down, but we'd go without an actor for 10 days and have to reschedule everything. It was a huge pain. 
How is that as a director when you're expecting, because you, you, you prep your shots. People just, you know, the directors just don't show up and go, hey, guys, do this. You, you prep. There's a lot of prep work. So how is it yep. for you when you sit there and you're going to sleep and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to get up tomorrow. I'm going to shoot scene with this guy, this guy. And then you get a call in the morning and they say, oh, yeah, by the way, Michael, he's got, he's got uh, COVID. He can't do it. How do you make up for that? Do you have to think on your feet or do you sit there and go, we can shoot around i mean how does that happen because that would be very frustrating to me if i was a director well it's a complicated answer to that question because first of all i do i prep pretty carefully at least in in my opinion it's pretty carefully i map out the shots that i want i have a really pretty good idea of what it is that i'm going to do before i get to the set but i've always said that one of the reasons you prep is so that you can throw your prep out the window when you get to the set because the reality of working with actors in a location with your crew all the variables that you can't control before you go in, which include weather and things like that, you need to be prepared to depart from your plan no matter what. And I don't, you know, the stories of these obsessive directors who will absolutely, they plan out everything really carefully and they won't deviate a bit from it. I don't know how true that is. It may be true of some. Um, I I talked to a an editor, uh, Rudy Fair, who cut Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder. And Rudy said to me, I said, oh, what was it like uh, editing for Alfred Hitchcock? He planned everything out. He had it all mapped out. And Rudy said, no, that's bullshit. He said, uh, Hitchcock shot like everybody else. He shot coverage like everybody else. You know, so there is, um, I think it's a bit of a myth when directors say they've got everything mapped out to the detail. On the other hand, the better prepped you are, the more intelligently you can deviate from your plans. I always feel like if I show up on the set and I haven't prepared for whatever reason, I can still, I can make a schedule, I can shoot good stuff, I feel confident that it, it'll all go okay. It maybe takes a few minutes longer, but generally it, it doesn't. The problem is, if I do that, then I'm really just, I'm following my first idea more often than not. It's sort of what hits you, this okay, We've rehearsed the scene or I've thought about the, the script and looked at the location. This is my first idea of how to approach it. If you plan carefully, you go through your first idea, then you revise it, you revise it. By the time you've even mapped out a shooting day, you've already kind of gone through many different options in your head and you're no longer going with what your first impulse is. Um, but with all that prep in mind, if you see something completely different when you see the scene unfold as you rehearse, you're comfortable. It's like, well, I know I, I was planning on these things. I don't want to change those, so I'll keep that, but I'll make these changes here. But the, the simple answer to your question is if, if, if I show up at the set, especially these days in the schedules that you have for streaming shows and cable shows, that sort of thing, um, if I show up and they say, change of plans, we're going to shoot this completely different sequence today, I'm fine. It's like, okay, you know, let, let's see what we got. And it's part of the fun of having had the amount of experience I've had that as a director, I'm, I'm usually very, very comfortable on set regardless of what is being thrown at. How did you become a director? Because, you know, you think of kids when kids, they want to be actors, some kids want to be writers, but you never really, like, I, I, I never went, I went to, I grew up in a nice town, and, I, you know, I never went to somewhere where a kid in elementary school said, oh, I want to be a director. You're like, well, you, you know, how did, how, what was your path? Because it's, it amazes me, you know, kids are imaginative, but when you're in high school, my creative writing teacher told us, write, 
No one ever said, hey, direct. I mean, the plays in the school were directed by the, you know, the, the head of the theater department. But how, what was your path? I mean, what got you into directing? What kind of kid were you? I was sort of the uh, music and art kid. I, I, my, musically, I wasn't that good, but I played the guitar in a band, and I liked it. It was a big part of my life. But I was, I was an artist, a visual artist, a drawer. You know, I did cartoons. I did paintings. I did that sort of thing. And in fact, when I got out of high school, um, I, I applied to university, and I also was going to apply to art school. Um, I, drove, I grew up in San Francisco. I drove down to CalArts. Um, which was a, you know, kind of interesting, fairly new art school down here in Southern California. I drove with a portfolio in my hands and I walked onto the campus and I looked around and I said, I'm not going to spend my college years in Valencia. You know, <laughs> this is not going to happen. So I never even applied. But um, I went to Cal Berkeley as a freshman and split my time between philosophy classes and studio art classes. And at, at this point, by the way, I was also fanatic about film. I'd always been a huge film fan and, and had thought in my head, oh, boy, I'd be so, I could be so lucky to be able to direct. You know, it seemed like an impossible job to get. Um, I, I spent a lot of time at the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley, which had the most amazing schedule of films. And so I, I was getting a lot of I was viewing a lot of films. I was painting a lot. And. I had spent a little bit of time in New York the summer before, and I said, I don't want to be in California. I don't want to have anything to do with any of this stuff. I'm going to go to New York and go to art school, which I did. And I enrolled at the School of Visual Arts. And at the School of Visual Arts, I took my first film class and shot Super 8. So I'd always been a film kid. I'd always been a film nerd. I made movies on 8mm cameras. You know, I'd never had a class or anything like that. I was disdainful of film students because I thought if you go to film school before you've learned about anything else, then your only frame of reference in life will be your limited experience and the movies you've seen, right? So I hated that. And I would argue with friends of mine, yeah, it's a fucking waste of time. You're going to go to film school. You won't know anything. Your films, your movies are going to be like, and you know, with all due respect, they're going to be like Steven Spielberg's. He has no experience except for movies that he's watched. And Spielberg is a great filmmaker, but not not necessarily the person I'd turn to as a model for what kind of films I'd want to make. And um, so anyway, so I was in New York. I was in art school. Art school turned out to be kind of a bust. I, I didn't feel like it was a good enough education. So I stayed in New York and went to a university and studied philosophy and became very academic, but never gave up the art stuff. So by the time I finished with uh, academia and realized that I was never going to be happy being a philosophy professor, I, I said, well, fuck this. I'm going to go back to California. I'm going to figure out how to become a film director. And that, that was my path. Now, you went back and you went to USC? I went, what I did was I went back to San Francisco. I had no money, an undergraduate degree in philosophy. I had a desire to be a director. I made much beyond what I'd done in my class in art school, um, I badgered everybody that I knew in the Bay Area um, who had any connection to film, and I got hired to be the receptionist at Zoetrope at Coppola's company. And I started there at the bottom, and I ended up working for Francis for three years. 
Uh, I applied to film school at UCLA and USC and it basically deferred an acceptance to UCLA and USC lost my application and never even responded. <laughs> so I, I said, well, who, I don't, doesn't matter. I'm working for a movie company. I moved to LA working for Francis and worked on One from the Heart and um, The Outsiders, Rumblefish, those movies. Meanwhile, um, USC found my application and, and they sent me a letter out of nowhere a couple of years after I applied and said, you know, uh, we found your application, we'd lost it. Um, are you still interested? And I laughed and I sent them a note saying, well, in the time that I've been waiting to hear from you, I've worked on these movies, but I haven't made any movies. And Francis was running out of money. He was, um, he lost a lot of money on one from the heart. I think he was going off to do Cotton Club. So there wasn't much for me to do there anymore that, that interested me. And uh, although I really, really loved working there and had great, great experiences. So I said, fuck it, I'll try film school. And I went to USC and, and then went there, made short films and came out and got work as a director. So directing, now you look at IMDb, you know, The Beaver Gets a Boner is your first credit listed, just so you know, which you're probably like, what the hell? Can you just take that off? Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but then it's Heather's. So what was your path to getting Heather's made? Because this is like in the boom when independent movies were actually like independent, like, you know, now they say that they're much bigger, but what was your path to getting Heather's made? Well, um, so I had made The Beaver Gets a Boner, which was, a, you know, unusual for a USC film. Most USC films are very straight down the middle, and this was a little closer to like a John Waters movie, something like that. And, um, and I got an agent. And I got some interest in Hollywood because the beaver gets a boner was kind of funny and it was odd. And um, uh, Dan Waters, who wrote Heather's, was an acquaintance of mine through my friend Larry Karaszewski, who, who I knew from film school. And I had helped Dan get an agent um, with his Heather's script. And he wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct the film. And... Um, and, you know, of course, sure, you know, if you can get Stanley Kubrick to direct it, that, that'd be good. But I told my agent, who I shared, her name is Bobby Thompson. She was at William Morris. I said to her, I said, when Stanley passes, can, can we figure out whether there's a way for me to do this at New World Pictures that had taken an interest in The Beaver Gets a Boner? And so uh, with producer Denise Denovi and Dan Waters, obviously, involved, we, we set the movie up at New World. Uh, it was very lucky. It, it, the script was unbelievably great. You know, the, the, honestly, um, I'm very proud of directing that movie, and I thought I did a good job for a first-time uh, director. But the script was was really pretty phenomenal. Now, now, when that movie came out, and I'm trying to think back, you know, I know it, it got a lot of momentum later, but when it first came out, what was the reception? Was it was it something that people knew you all of a sudden? They said. Hey, this guy, you know, because I mean, it became a classic. I mean, it's a cult classic. People remember that. But how was it when it first? Because you were you were in that cyclone right there when it came out. What was the first cycle yeah. for? Well, uh, you know, we made this movie. We said this is pretty good. This film is, you know, we we liked it. Those of us who made it because we like the dark sense of humor, and that that usually doesn't work very well. Um, we got it into the Sundance Film Festival, and this was the very early days of Sundance. It wasn't didn't mean much 
it was starting to mean something. Uh, Heather's played the same year as uh, Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was the movie that got the most attention that year. Um, and the, the response was great from some people and terrible from others. The independent film community was not particularly welcoming of that movie. They thought it was commercial. It was a teen film. It was a high school film. It had a lot of foul language in it. It had uh, a moral perspective that many people thought was not in line with what good independent filmmaking should be. Uh, it was somewhat genre. And so a lot of people liked it, and there was a lot of positive response, and then there was a very angry backlash kind of response that was happening just right up front before the movie went past Sundance. Um, when it came out, happily, a lot of the reviews were really good. Uh, so we did get good, we got pretty good reviews. There were, there were some, there were always the people who didn't get it, didn't like it, thought it was over overhyped, whatever. Um, but it didn't do any box office because New World Pictures was essentially going out of business the week that they released the film. Um, in its second week, after it had good reviews and, and pretty good uh, audiences in the big cities, there was no ad for it in the New York Times because New, New World didn't have the money to pay for an ad. So after you, after that gets done, so where do you get to that? Because you know it's funny. You look at you. You only wrote one movie, okay? You wrote Meet the Applegates, right? Yeah. Now, now, why was that just an overwhelming experience? Because are you just haven't wanted to write anything after that and direct too? Because you know it's it's no, really I, what, what what happened. I, I mean, what what why just stop writing? Well, I got sucked into directing a lot of stuff, and I never had the time to write. I have over the years, all written other things, but, um, and some of them are pretty good. You know, the dream project that I worked on for a couple of years that I wrote a script for was an adaptation of the Donald Westlake novel, The Axe, which um, was my friend, Michael London, who, who was an executive on Airheads at Fox and he is a really good producer, produced movie uh, that I directed called 40 Days and 40 Nights. Michael's very great, great with material, came to me with this Donald Westlake book, The Axe, um, which uh, was a deliciously well-written, terrific dark comedy, and we optioned it, and I wrote a script, which I thought was really good, but it was very dark, and um, the main character was murdering a lot of people, so we had a little trouble getting it made. Um, interestingly, it's in the option ran out, and uh, and Costa Gavras, the... the um, French Greek filmmaker optioned it and made it in France. I can't remember if, if he had a different title for it, but he made a pretty good version of it that was not very successful. And recently I hear that, um, you know, the director who did Parasite is doing it. Um, but anyway, so that's a long way of answering. I still write and I, I like to write. But the kind of things that I write are also not easily made. And, and you know, when I do a movie, I'll, I'll do some sort of a, a script revision. I, I'm very respectful of writers. I wouldn't want to take the credit. And, and usually if I do script revisions uh, in, a, in a movie situation, I do them. I make I offer the changes to the writer. And not to not to say, well, I'm going to rewrite this, and my name's going to be on it as a writer. I don't do that. I'll, I'll make changes and say, 
what do you think of this? Is this in line with your vision as a writer? Because this is how I see it as a director, and and that usually leads to something um, kind of, you know, usually I I hope better. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wonder because it's weird because I saw that and I was like, I looked and there's so many directors because you direct so much. And now you mentioned Airheads, and it's funny. I was at this business event and like this 34 year old guy comes up and he knows about my podcast and he's like, Oh yeah, you ever any ever anyone from a uh, Airheads and uh, and the guy loved it and like it, it's got like this cult following that's coming. I'm like, well, I know the writer, and then now you're on. But it's like when Airheads, you know, I think about it now. You know, when Airheads came out, and I knew of it because Rich is good friends with a friend of mine, my neighbor in San Diego back in the day. It had such a great cast. I mean, not Brendan's going on doing the Oscar if you send me. What was that like? Because that was like Sandler was. I mean, what, what was that? Was the early days of Sandler? Like he was. Getting there, but yeah. not blowing mm -hmm. up. What was that like directing young guys? Like that probably had to. Ha you have to have a little bit of an ego because you're in a movie. But what is that like when you you're directing like guys that are just? I heard the set was just fun and crazy. But what's it like directing them? Was it like herding cats or what was it like? No, it was a, that was a really really fun good experience. I th that was a cast that um, I was really happy with that cast and and put a lot of care into trying to put that together and get everybody approved you know it was not easy um sandler was on our list of uh people to target at the start because he was on snl but he wasn't a movie star he i don't think he'd done anything maybe he'd done uh, uh bobcat goldthwaite's movie you know uh, shakes the clown he was in the, you know he'd done a couple things but he he was he was a popular SNL cast member um, and he wasn't going to play the lead anyway. I didn't think that was right. So Brendan was suggested as a possibility. I remember John Cusack was suggested as a possibility. And I liked Brendan from um, seeing uh, Encino Man, which was not, I didn't think all that much of the movie itself, but I thought he was good. And so putting him together with Sandler that seemed to make some sense. And Buscemi was, Steve had been in a movie that a friend of mine directed called 20 Bucks. This guy, Kiva Rosenfeld, who's an editor and a good friend and a good filmmaker, never made another feature, but uh, did some documentaries. He made a movie called 20 Bucks. And I think actually Brendan had a small role in it um, and did well. And Steve had a, had a, pretty significant role in it and he was great and I'd seen him in Tom DiCello's movies I'd seen him in a lot of the indie films he did in New York and so in I guess what I'm saying is that the biggest achievement for me was getting people like Steve Buscemi or Joe Mantegna into a studio mainstream comedy uh, which was not easy I had to fight really hard to get these guys cast um, I didn't have to fight so hard to get Sandler cast, I didn't have to fight so hard to get Brendan cast, although he wasn't a star yet. But the other guys, it was a real, a lot of work um, just to get them approved. And, uh, you know, Michael McKeon and, and, and then we had, you know, Chris Farley and, and Michael Richards we had, and, and um, Ernie Hudson, you know, we had a lot of good actors in there that, that were they liked the script rich wrote, wrote a great script it was a really funny script and it was a good project and so uh directing everybody was a pleasure that was a, that was a group that was happy to be there um david arquette was also quite good in that um the 
what what happened was we were stuck in that radio station shooting for a long time. So a lot of us were on set together for many days. And it wasn't like actors would come in and work a day here, a day there. They were they were really in, into the film. And um, I, I don't remember any big issues trying to get performances from anybody. You know, Brendan was fantastic. And he was very much by the book. And Adam was a little looser because he came out of stand-up and, and improv and sketch comedy. But... Uh, you know, I told him, let's try to stick to the script, but if you want to deviate, we'll play around, which we did. Um, uh, it was funny because I I was, you know, really serious about trying to get the movie made and get it done. So my headspace was we have to organize all this stuff. It was complicated to shoot with that many people in one space for so long to make the movie that way. And I remember one night, we did a lot of nights. I was shooting and I took a break to get a snack and... Sandler and Buscemi were hanging out at the craft service getting some food and they were both giggling like crazy and I said I said what what are you guys what's what's going on why are you so happy and they were giggling like you know dad caught them I said you're not high are you <laughs> and and they started giggling a lot more and I realized that probably the people who were in the movie were having fun in a different way than I was <laughs> Now, your 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 I guess so your career is probably you did a, an early in your career you did an episode of Homicide, which was a great that's a, you know it sucks that you really can't find that series like streaming because Reed Diamond's been on my show and and Polito when he's alive was on my show and he told me how it was such a pain in the ass to take Polito's role because people really like Polito then Reed comes on and he's this good looking young guy and you go from John, John Polito yeah and it's one of those shows that was so gritty what was it like directing that because. What I've heard is it had a low budget, but it had a, an innovative view. It had more of like a gritty thing. How did you end up with that job? I mean, did that were you trying to also do TV besides movies? No. In fact, what, what happened was I'd never done TV. I, I was developing a project that Vince Gilligan wrote that Barry Levinson and Mark Johnson were producing. It was called Two-Face. It never got made. It was an amazing script. It was complicated, difficult material. And I was trying to get it made. And um, it basically came down to uh, there was one actor that the it was a TriStar. They, they would do it with that actor. If he said no, they wouldn't make the movie. Uh, he said no. And Mark Johnson said to me, well, Barry is making a television show in Baltimore based on this David Simon book do you want to direct an episode? And I, I said, well, I've never done television. I have no idea. I, I've done three movies. I, I said, I don't know. Sure. You know, Barry Levinson is doing it. I'm sure it's going to be great. And I flew to Baltimore and they were, Barry was shooting the pilot and um, he was in the middle of shooting it. And I just watched and I said, Oh, okay. Television is different. And that show had a very different shooting style than, than anything else anyway. Um, and a guy named Martin Campbell was doing the next episode after Barry's, and then I was going to do mine. So I sat and watched Barry work, and I met the actors, and I hung out in Baltimore with John Waters and his crew, who were all on the show, by the way. Um, and uh, and I did the show. I, I had Mine was actually the third episode shot. Um, I had no idea what television was all about. I had no idea how directors functioned in television as opposed to the way they do in features. 
And I wasn't really convinced that they either liked me very much or liked what I did very much, but I, I did my show and it got moved to the finale of the season. I think it was a short season that first year. And I thought, oh, they must hate my episode because they, they didn't put it in order. They put it at the end of the season. <laughs> and, and I never really talked to them afterwards. I had a, a good time shooting the show. Uh, it was very challenging. Television schedules are challenging. And those actors were really, they were really good and they were very demanding. So Polito, Polito gave me nothing but grief. He, the first, I show up on set and he goes, oh, the director of Hudson Hawk. Oh, hi. This, this isn't like doing Hudson Hawk, is it? You know, he just, he wouldn't let up. And I was like, John, yes, I directed Hudson Hawk. You know, leave me alone. It's okay. And, and um, Yafit Kato pulled me aside and said, let me tell you about the first uh, movie I ever did with Henry Hathaway directing. And he told me some story about Henry Hathaway tried to tell him what to do. It was on a Western. And he put Henry Hathaway in his place. And I'm like, okay, fine, I get it. I'm a young guy. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, you, if you want to be that way with me, no problem. Um, but they they were all really good. I mean, you know, I was working with Ned Beatty, and, you know, it was like, and Melissa Leo did a great turn in that episode. She was fantastic. It was all sorts of really good acting going on. Um, and uh, and it was fun for me because it was so much different than making a movie. Um, what was Hudson Hawk like? Because that was a really big budget. Yeah, so, it was so a big for, budget. For you, you're, you know, you're young. I mean, all of a sudden you get this huge budget. I think I would be very intimidated. I mean, you know you want to do it, but you're probably thinking, I better not screw up. I mean, you already said you were worried that they didn't like you on Homicide because they moved your script. But how is, it, how is Hudson Hawk getting when you find out you have this big budget? I was too stupid to be intimidated. I mean, you know, I, I, I had worked on big budget movies, I guess. I worked on one from the heart, which was a, which was a, was supposed to be a small movie, but became a rather big movie, and it was it was unsuccessful um, commercially. Um, so I'd been around filmmaking at a higher level than than what I'd done when I did Meet the Applegates and and, and Heather's, but um, I'd never run across people like Joel Silver or Bruce. You know that 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 level of Hollywood ego power. I just nothing in my life prepared me for that stuff. Um, so it was, you know, it was tough. I mean, it was interesting. It, I liked making the big film. The challenges were, were fun to me. And, um, and it was a really complicated, high level, big budget production, but I just wasn't really, I think I, I didn't really know how to deal with all the massive egos and agendas that go on at that level. Um, so, you know, I focused on making the film. We were also trying to make a really unusual picture, and uh, and I also learned that you don't do that when you're when you're making a uh, when you're spending a lot of money that the studio has. You don't do it at, unless you're willing to you know sort of be. You do it at your own peril, you know. And uh, it was it was tough. I mean, and the movies the movie is unusual. I'm very proud of the movie for being what it is, which is not like anything else that was being made then in that format. And, and it has, it has its following still, but mostly I was just beaten up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny. You look at, you know, you, all the actors you've just mentioned, you know, 
Bruce Willis and Ned Beatty, Afikoto, Polito. And I wanted to ask, I had to ask you this, and before I forget, what was it like working with George Murasan? That must have been the most random thing because he was, if you people, if you don't know, George Murasan was a basketball player, played for the Washington Wizards or Bullets, I think, back then. He was like yeah. seven, seven two, maybe, seven four. I don't even know. No, I think taller than that. He might have been like seven five. He was really tall. When, now, when you got a, when you got connected to that project, did you know that like a seven foot five NBA player was going to be in it, or did you think maybe they'll get a really tall trained actor? No, I think you know that movie was it was very much Billy Crystal's movie, and he was looking for a director, and I had had a project fall apart, um, and I wanted to. You know, I wanted to do something, and I thought, well, this is really unusual. This is different than anything I've done. It was more of a kids' movie in a way, and I like Billy quite a bit, you know. And I thought, all right. And Billy came to me and he said, I've got this guy, George Murison. He plays in the NBA. He's not an actor, but he's got a very sympathetic quality, and he's game to do this. And I knew Andre the Giant, and he reminds me of Andre the Giant. And this movie is based a lot on Billy's relationship with Andre the Giant. So I said, yeah, well, let me see. And I met with George, and George had this great personality and a wonderful presence. And he was game to try to be an actor and do it. And so I thought, well, this is a challenge. You know, this is an unusual challenge. I've got an actor who's not an actor. I've got a guy who has never been on set before, English is not his first language. English is probably his fifth language. Who knows? And um, and he's got to be right in the middle of this movie. And he's playing off Billy Crystal, who, um, you know, Billy is a he's a he's a big personality. You know, so that meant that George was going to have to figure out how to how to function with Billy. With Billy was very supportive of George. It, that was not a problem, but it also just. For me as a director, it made it more of a problem to figure out how to get all those elements to work together. <laughs> I don't know if I did or not. but Now, I want to talk about your TV work. Uh, we did a little bit, but you now Larry Sanders, you know, that must have been an experience because, you know, I know people who wrote for Larry and they said he was a great guy. And, and I, the company was on and said how the whole arc of him ending up on that show was like as a joke because he loved the show. And that was just yeah. one of those shows... You know, when you, you think back, that's a show that if you explain it, it's just hip. You know what I mean? Like, it's hip. Like, you you have to know the business. I mean, because it, it's cool. What was that like? How did that come about? And, and did you have a good relationship with, with uh, Gary? Yeah, I had a really good relationship with Gary. I, he was he was amazing. Um, in fact, so I was represented by Brad Gray at Grilson Gray, who was also Gary's manager. They had a famous falling out later on. And they came to me at one point with the script for the pilot to the Sanders show and asked if I would be interested in directing it. And I read it and I thought it was brilliant and really funny. Uh, I, I think it was Gary and Dennis Klein who wrote I'm not quite sure who wrote that pilot script. But um, and I said at that point, I'd never done any television. I said, my, you know, I just, I've never done TV. I don't think I should be the guy to direct a pilot for a television show because I don't really know enough about the mechanics of setting up a show, but this is great material. And um, 
they did the first season. I think um, I think Ken Quapis ultimately directed the first episode. Um, they might have gone through some other directors before then, but Ken did a lot of the stuff in the first season, and uh, Todd Holland also. And I watched the first season and thought the show was unbelievably great. And so I knew Gary through Brad and from around. And um, and so they asked if I wanted to come in and do any episodes. And I said, well, that I could do. You know, I think by that time I'd done my homicide episodes. So my, my uh, virginity in television had been already violated. And um, so I, I came in and did an episode and had a great time and that was a really special show for all the reasons all the reasons that everybody loves it because the writing was so great gary was amazing the group of actors was phenomenal um but it was also the, the shooting style was very strange it was a hybrid multi-cam single cam style it was shot on 16 millimeter film they would um, do a table read on monday they would rehearse Tuesday and Wednesday, and the whole show was shot in two days on Thursday and Friday of that week. So you were shooting sometimes as much as 16 pages of material per day, um, but not like a multicam show, not in front of an audience with three cameras. I wouldn't even know how to do that. Um, but it was a really interesting production, and the actors were so good, and Gary really played a big role in sort of determining how much they could or couldn't improv or go off of script. But usually by the time the shooting was done on Thursday and Friday, the scripts had been very well worked out by an incredibly strong team of writers. So uh, you, you had great writing and you had uh, Gary Gary's vision for what the tone of the show could be and should be. And then we had this challenging way of shooting. Uh, I thought it was really terrific. I mean, never had so much fun doing anything before and it was hard i mean it was challenging now in the later years you've you've moved towards tv i have a friend who directs a lot of commercials this guy's named jordan brady and he had uh directed you know some independent stuff and he said when you do a movie it like takes like a whole year of your life you know he says like a commercial really? at least yeah like you have to do the promo and the everything and this and that and this and that but he said when he does a commercial you know he just did the kelly coco campaign he said we shot like eight commercials at whatever time with tv you you come in is that one of the reasons why you gravitated towards tv because i'm sure as you get older you're like i don't want to spend a whole year on a project and you are an accomplished director so if you look at your you know your resume you work on all good shows it's not like you're sitting there going like you know some show with a wrestler juggling a baboon or something like that Right, right. I mean, so what? What? Why did you decide to transition over to TV more? Was it just because of convenience, or because you suffer a little burnout when you do a lot of movies? No. What happened was um, the kind of was hard to get off the ground. You know, it's tough. If you want to do dark comedies, if you want to do satirical work in Hollywood, you can't. That's people don't want to pay for that stuff. And and in order to get any of those kind of movies made you need to be both lucky and you also need to get actors that are meaningful involved and you need to maneuver through a lot of stuff. So I'm, I would get impatient and I'd say, I don't want to spend this much time not being on set. And that's why I did, you know, I did a homicide when a movie fell apart. I did the Larry Sanders show 
when I was developing other stuff and wasn't ready to go into production on movies and I could go in and work for a little short amount of time with good actors and good material. And this had been happening throughout the 90s for me that I would just go and TV for me was a chance to sort of stay sharp, be on set, work with good actors, work with really good writers and not have all the time demands of a feature. Plus, like you said, you know, it's not going to take two years of my life. And um, this, if I would do things like I'd do them randomly, but I would only do material that I cared about. I did the fourth episode of The West Wing, you know, and that show had not, only the pilot had been shot. And, but I thought, oh, this is really good material, and these actors are great, and I had a great time. I'd go in, I'd work for a couple weeks, and then I'm gone. So you don't have all the headaches of, of having to follow a, a project from start to finish. Um, but you also get all the disadvantages of not being fully engaged the way you are in feature, and you can't put a personal stamp on it as much as you can when you make a feature. So I would sort of go back and forth on these things. And then uh, I think starting with, I did a show called The Comeback for HBO, Lisa Kudrow, right? Yeah, and I really, really loved it. And I really had a great time. And I did, I think, four episodes. So that may have been, I did, I mean, I did a number of Larry Sanders episodes, but I did them spread out over a few years. And I think the comeback may have been the first time that I did a bunch of episodes in a cluster. And I realized you can get invested in a good show not quite the same way as you do in a feature, but still really be in there and get some ownership in the show, creative ownership in, in your own head. Uh, and I found that really interesting. And then I found that the movies that I was able to get made in Hollywood were less and less interesting to me. And the material that was coming up in cable at that time, mostly HBO, Showtime, that sort of stuff, was far more interesting to me. And so it was really, I was going where the, where the good material was. I was going to say that, yeah, I was going to say it must have been something where as a director, when you're in the beginning of TV, it's one thing, but now it's such solid, solid work. Like I said, Snowfall, you know, different shows you've directed, you know, it must be, it must be great as a director to go, wow, there's like eight different shows I would like to work on. I mean, that must be great when you sit there and you have the choice and you have a name that you can get those projects. Yeah, it was, I felt I was very lucky at that time. I, I went from in what, in my opinion, was one good show to another, and and I had good relationships with the writers on these shows, and was very comfortable kind of helping them make the best possible versions of these things that that, that we could make, and I was also lucky to work with really good actors, and so it I learned a lot as a director also by going in and doing TV. At first, I thought, well, this is kind of like the old old studio days in Hollywood, where as a director you'd come in and you'd be assigned to a movie and you'd do it and you'd work with the stars and they'd be happy and you'd, you'd get it done and then you'd be on to something else. Um, I, I actually kind of liked that idea, um, as opposed to being the auteur who sits in a room and conceives of something that's very personal, which is great, but you know, and then you, you take forever and ever and then you finally get a chance to make your movie. And since not everything I did was all that commercially successful, I realized how 
difficult it is when something comes out and doesn't do that well, then nobody wants to talk to you, and then you have that much more difficulty getting your stuff made. In television, as a director, you could come in and really do good work, and if nobody wants to show, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. You could find something else to do, and you know. Well, it's funny, we were talking about hip shows. You also worked on Californication, which I have interviewed both David and Evan and Stephen Tobolowski. I, I, you know, and yeah. I love that show. I lived in L.A. at the time, and I had, East, I had the East Coast feed of uh, Showtime, when I, I, and I would get home. Like, I would know I could watch it at 6, you know, like, or whatever it was on, or, or like on yeah. demand or come a week and miss. What was that shoot like? Because that's a skilled group of actors. Yeah, that was also a really, really good experience. You know, th they shot that show every year. I think it was uh, late spring, summer. It might have been in the summer during the time when other television shows were on hiatus. And doing Californication was so much fun that uh, the people on it referred to it as California Vacation because they would do their other work <laughs> the rest of the year and have to deal with all the miseries of regular television production. And then they'd do Californication, where you had a great cast that would come prepared, that were game to play if that was what needed to be done. You had Duchovny, who was basically a genius, and also uh, an extremely accomplished actor, and had a strong beat on the character because he was a producer on the show. You had a writer in Tom Kapanos who was essentially he had a writing staff, but for and and he had a great writing staff. But he also he took ownership of those scripts in a way that I hadn't seen in other shows so much. Um, and so there was a more singular voice in the writing. Um, and so you know, long story short, it was a it was a great show to come work on. It was challenging because the schedule was short. They didn't have a lot of money. And I think the episodes were shot in five days. And uh, But it was a really good team. The producers were fantastic. It was one of those things where I've just never, you know, I was happy to show up and do that work and always enjoyed, you know, the episodes. They were good. They were really good stuff. How as a director, how do you focus? Like before that, you did a bunch of True Blood, too. Now, that's a vampire. That's completely different. I mean, how how do you prep yourself to sit there and go, okay, this is an hour vampire and and people who follow vampires have like this certain knowledge like the normal people who don't know vampires don't know but how do you go like from back and forth to project how do you get prepared mentally for something like you know that's lo a longer shoot or a completely different subject well and this is the other thing that's interesting about directing television particularly good quality television is that you can do very different different kinds of material. So for, I'll work for a month on True Blood and then I'll go do Californication and you can't imagine those two the very different kinds of things and they require a completely different approach as director. So uh, for me, once I figured out the, what, the way television worked, um, what I found was that you have to look at what the show is. You have to look at what how it was established when a pilot was made, what it is that's successful in the show, what it is that doesn't work in the show, um, how the actors like to work. And as a director, you come in and you say, I understand what this show needs to be, and I'm going to try to make the best possible version of it. I'm going to 
bring what I what I have and do what I can do. I'm not going to try to make it something different than what it is. Um, that is not really very useful on a television show. Um, so it, it was always a big challenge to make sure that my understanding of what the show needed to be was the right understanding, you know? And in the case of True Blood, I could care less about vampires. I never had any interest in vampires. I like horror genre, but the vampire stories, they're not really horror the way, you know, they're, they're their own thing. But True Blood was satire. True Blood was a comedy. In my mind, the vampire stuff was just ridiculous. And, and, but it was a great opportunity to do real good social satire. And Alan Ball, who's a terrific writer, he saw it that way. Um, you know, vampires were the outsiders. They were gay people. They were black people, whatever. The vampires were representative of those who were not accepted in society. And that drove the show. So my approach was make sure that those thematic elements were always there and that dark sense of humor was always there. It was in the writing and I could definitely find ways to play it and get the actors to do it. And at the same time, it was a pretty high quality um, production. So we could do really cool stuff and look great. Take the dive. There were great DPs on that show and we, we would, the design was terrific. So that was a very controlled, precise, specific way of shooting. Californication was very loose. It was set in LA. There were a lot of location shooting. You didn't have time to do these fancy shots or do things that were, were that were as choreographed or so so uh, carefully controlled, but you had great comic actors. So there the focus was on how do you get everybody in the right frame of mind to do the right kind of comedic performances and where do we put the cameras in order to enhance that but not overwhelm the performances? It's not about the look of the show, but you're never just recording a performance. You're always in a cinema. You're, you're figuring out a look that is right for the show. It's visual storytelling. Does this now, make sense? Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, I do have to ask you about, well, two things. One, well, you did Blunt Talk, uh, which is a great show. And the funny thing about Blunt Talk is I, when I, I look, I remember looking at that poster of him on a boat. I was actually his photo double for that poster. I was living in Hollywood. I went to a studio and they had me, me and other people look like the cast. I stood on the raft and they gave me the microphone and they... They checked the lighting, and then we left, and then they all came in later and did it. But that's why I always cracked up when I saw that. I forgot that I even did that. But what was it like on that set? Because, you know, that was that was a, that was a good show. I, I had really enjoyed that show. It's funny. I had dinner last night with Jonathan Ames, who created the show. Um, that, that was an interesting thing, because I'd worked with Jonathan. We did a show called um, Bored to Death in New York with Jason Schwartzman and Zach Galifianakis and Ted Danson. And that Great was show. really that was a that great, was great show. Yeah, and that was a... I really had a great time doing that show, and I love Jonathan. He's a terrific writer. And he set up Blonde Talk, and he said, you know, will you come to do any episodes? And I'm like, well, this is a workplace comedy about, uh, you know, a, a news station. And I said, that's... You know, I've done Larry Sanders' show, which is very different in look, but not so different in terms of tone and feel. And um, so... Uh, you, you know, that was also, that was a tr really, really good cast on that show. And Patrick Stewart is a great actor. He was, he was a little bit out of his normal element, which was fun. 
because he was not normally, he wasn't used to doing comedy. And um, there was a bit of kind of just making sure that he was in his right comfort zone for the particular comedy of that show um, and, and for what Jonathan was writing. So um, it took, you know, that was, there was a lot of directing involved in just trying to figure out how to get all the elements to work together well. But once again, that was a lovely cast. They were really good to work with together. They were, they were very good. And Jonathan's writing is so, he has such a singular voice. It, it's, uh, his point of view comes across in everything he does. And he's an, he's an odd character with a, with a great perspective on life. So, and because I'd worked with him, I understood that. And I had a pretty good idea tonally what it was that uh, that you could do in in filmmaking to bring his voice, which was in many ways a literate voice, to bring it to the screen. Um, that was that was a fun show. I'm glad you liked that. Not very many people saw that show. We, me and my wife watched it. Okay, I got to talk about Snowfall. Uh, to me, that's such a great show. I've watched it since the beginning. I, you know, I sit there. I, a good friend of mine. I said, he's like, "What should I watch?" I said, "You got to watch Snowfall." And I've seen, you know character franklin develop over the years like to the thing which episodes did you direct what what seasons so i directed episodes in the first three seasons um and god it'll be hard for me to to tell you exactly which ones but the, you know and what i what this was an interesting show because singleton uh, created the show um and tommy Shlami was also involved as a producer and Dave Andron was running the show with Singleton. And it, first of all, amazing show. Uh, just an unbelievable cast. Uh, the writing was always really interesting and very challenging. And the tone of it was hard to get right because it, in some ways it was kind of a, you know, almost a genre gangster action show. But it was really very character driven. And, and the cast on that show is so good. Uh, each character was extremely well written, but each actor brought a lot to it. So uh, the sense I got is that when they started the show, they wanted a combination of very experienced directors who, you know, like me at that point, had done a lot of stuff and knew how to come in and, and get a show done. And then a lot of young directors, um, ethnically diverse uh, women, people that hadn't been given the opportunities to direct in, in television so much in the years before that, that they would come in and um, maybe wouldn't know, know quite how to, how to make the machine function the way the more experienced directors did. And I, I got a kick out of that. I thought it was kind of fun that, that all the directors were great, but we would all have different approaches. And um, the cast was very, they were very good to work with. They were very open um, you know, I always thought it was funny. I'm doing this show about 1980s cocaine dealing in in South Central L.A. I lived in L.A. at that time, but I my life in L.A. was very different. And so I thought I'm not exactly authentic to this, but I do remember the period. And I knew a lot of people who were, you know, peripherally in, in that world. And I knew John Singleton and I, I loved him. He was quite an amazing person. So I felt both a little bit of an outsider and also in many ways an insider. And that was, that was fun. The, the show stylistically was, you know, very loose, very visually interesting. 
um, different than a lot of stuff I'd done. Um, we moved the camera a lot. We did a lot of cool shots. We did a lot of great kind of uh, very, very inventive sort of stuff. It was a real pleasure. And I did, I did first three seasons. I did one episode each season and I was going to do the finale in the fourth season, but it was a pandemic. And um, I ended up uh, not, not doing it because they had another director who was going to do one episode. They had to combine episodes. So I sort of fell out, fell out at that point and ended up doing something else. But um, boy, I just, you know, Damson, the lead actor, he's so good. He's just so good. You know, people didn't realize he's a Brit. I know. I, it's my, you know? Wife, my wife's on <laughs> the Today Show. And she goes, you know, he's British. I said, yeah, I know, because I, I do my research. But yeah, people don't know, because you don't... But nowadays, you think when you see a show, there's a good chance they're a Brit. <laughs> it's yeah, those things. It's good. So, one final question. What's what's on your docket coming up? What can we look for with you coming out? Because I know you, you work all the time. I mean, you're one of those guys. I know when we talked, I think you were getting done a production. Or What's going on with you right now? Well, I just finished... Um, there's a show called American Rust with Jeff Daniels that did a season on Showtime and it moved over to Amazon Freebie and they did a second season. And um, I did two episodes. I've, I've always loved Jeff Daniels. I, the show sh shoots in Pittsburgh. It was a really, it was a gritty, dark drama, very, um, very, you know, Heartland America, Rust Belt America. Um, I loved doing it. I had a great time. Maura Tierney and Jeff Daniels and uh, Mark Menchaca, a bunch of actors that were really good. Um, I just finished that. So that's what you have to look forward to. That'll, I don't know when that'll air sometime. I guess maybe fall. I don't know how long it takes for them to put it together. But that that's what I did. Um, yeah, I don't know. After that, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Um, and, and the landscape is changing a lot now. It's funny. I... In some ways, I still haven't I haven't really figured out where I fit in in the things that are being done currently. So I don't know. We'll see something good. I mean, I, I love this Netflix thing I did, uh, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. I had a great time. I think Kristen Bell is she's phenomenal, and that was that was once again it was an odd comedy, and I that's what I really like to do. So I'm looking to see if I can find any more things that have um, that kind of uh, unexpected tone or a mix a mix of tones that uh, that challenge has always been fun for me. Well, that's awesome, Mike. I want to thank you. Uh, people, go on to IMDb. Look up Michael Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N-N. -N. Look at all his work. Go watch his movies. Go watch his TV shows, and you'll see, hey, that guy does a great job. Uh, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 950 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. My Twitter's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.